This is Mental, the podcast to destigmatize mental health. I'm Bobby Temps. I'm Danny Hogan. Each Thursday, we delve into a factor or condition that influences the mind and how to better manage it. With special guests and stats you can trust, here we go. This week, we're talking all about masculinity in relation to mental health. And believe it or not, this is actually not linked to our two-part series on mental health and gender that we did recently. It just so happened the way it was recorded. This was recorded first, but it's going out afterwards. The ever-weirdness of podcasting. So with all of those stats covered so recently, we're actually not going to start off with stats and throw the format slightly out of the window for this intro and instead check in on coming into lockdown number two here in the UK and how that's been so far. Talking briefly off mic, it seems like Danielle and I have had a kind of similar experience with that where although this lockdown is not as strict as the previous one, it's already feeling harder just a few days in. So much harder like struggling to find hope it might be seasonal too you know like it's dark Mm. all the time and it is just so tempting to get under your covers and stay there you know at least when well for me loving the sunshine at least when it was summer you know just getting out I mean it was so hot it's like literally like holiday hot so just getting out in the garden you're outside and it just changes for me that feeling of claustrophobia and being able to feel free and it's green. I'm lucky enough to have a garden that's, you know, got lovely trees and grass and I could be out there sunbathing, you know, <laughs> maybe had a few too many glasses of wine during that time. So it seems to <laughs> connect. And obviously people are, are ill, you know, as much as we feel, you know, individually, we think about our own selves and our own families and what's going on for us in our own world. You know, the, on the bigger picture, there's this underlying thing that there are people dying. It's, you know, it's hard. So it's, I do feel, I can even hear it in my voice today. I'm just like flat a bit. Yeah, I definitely get that. It's really tough. And it does remind me of the kind of debate that you've alluded to there of people having different opinions over the hot weather. There was a lot of people that that, that made it worse for them being trapped inside the heat. But I think we both shared that, that we liked it. You know, we'd if, if we have to be trapped inside, we'd rather look out on a sunny day. I normally love autumn and winter. Actually, winter is normally my favourite season. But this time, not so much. You know, normally I like it. I like the cosying up. I like the putting on loads of layers. I like the big coats. I love coming up to Christmas time. And, you know, the, the kind of the strange sort of unified busyness that happens, you know, when everyone gets a little bit frantic ahead of Christmas. I sort of like that because it sort of feels uniting in a way. And this time we're united in something distinctly sadder. I agree because, and as well, I think what's nice about that with the winter is you, you really quite look forward to getting in and having that snuggle and having that comfort food or hot chocolate or whatever it is it might be that, you know, because you're out and you're busy and like you said, you living right in the city it's constant that shopping and the lights and all the Christmas lights coming on it's busy and then you get home and you but at the moment you're just like in anyway so like you have to get in for no novelty (laughs) no novelty but yeah talking about Christmas though actually that was you, you we said it off air you were like actually I'm quite looking forward to Christmas and I went Bob do you know what I am and I'm not really I mean you know I like Christmas and I think the kids I've gone through a funny phase like going being without children 
Christmas was always a time for partying for me. I've, you know, as I've mentioned on the podcast before, that's been a big part of my life. I've been a real social out person. And so that was always the thing. And then having children, it was always nice because kids love it. And then some of that novelty kind of wore off. They're getting a little bit older. I mean, they're still young and they still get excited. But this year, I got a bit of a pang about two weeks ago and thought, oh, Christmas, maybe it's the whole something to bloody look forward to. Yeah. I mean, and we hope, right? Because that's a worry for me of will I actually get to see my parents, seeing them and also my sister and my aunt, us all coming together, mm. is part of our Christmas tradition now. And we can't be certain that that is all going to work out. But it doesn't stop me looking forward to it. You know, I still want it, even though logically I can't be certain of that. So definitely it's something, yeah, something to hopefully look forward to. And I think actually New Year, which normally is a time I find really difficult, I think New Year might actually be a positive one this time. Yeah, that's good to hear because I know you don't love New Year and you're right, you just reframe it. And actually (laughs) New Year can't be any better it's going to be better than what we've just had although I'm realizing that could be kind of ironic that it would be a good new year because we'd be saying goodbye to 2020 so (laughs) it's still maybe a slightly half glass full version of optimism (laughs) glass half empty I should say but you know what if if it works it works and we need things to hope for right now and on a serious note the thing that's at least for me, being really tricky about this second lockdown is the social side of it. It's just knowing that we were starting to unlock and as much as I was for another lockdown, I would have liked a circuit breaker sooner. When we've actually come to it after the delays and all the insistence that there wouldn't be another lockdown from the government to then get one, it's sort of like, oh, here we go again. Yeah, so the social side, particularly over the last few days since going into it, has been the, the thing that's really tough for me, realising that this is again a delay to me seeing friends that, you know, I've not seen in a year, many of them. Or, you know, when will I next go down to London somewhere I'm usually often down to for work or Edinburgh to see my aunt, you know, these things are back to being very uncertain again. Yeah, I can totally understand that because, you and I guess as well, because of the way that it's been not only like put on us, but we are really in a transition because it doesn't quite feel real because it was so much over the summer. We really got into it and you just knew what your boundaries were. At the moment, we spoke before, you know, shops are meant to be closed. I saw a toy store open and like I'm, I'm a, we're all a little bit still confused of what we can and can't do. We've not quite settled, even though we should, it feels like we should know not quite settled into the way that they're asking us to behave again because we've just kind of come out of it. And so I feel like, is it even going to work? Because people aren't, I think less, a lot less people are following the rules than what they did in the summer when we all, it hit us all like a ton of bricks and we're all like, oh shit, we've got to do this. Come on as a nation, let's clap for the carers. Let's all pull our weight and be in it together. Now it's a little bit all over the place. And so I don't know whether even that will mean that it will carry on longer because is it going to work, whatever work means? Mm. I don't know. And it's, you know, oh. I know. It reminds me of actually our guest, Francesca Melindri, when she wrote that wonderful piece. And, yeah. met, and I think one of the lines was, the boat that we'll be sailing through this in will look very different for each of us. And I think, again, it's a reminder of that because I'd sort of been somewhat sustained on meeting new people via the podcasting. 
And now I'm sort of really getting to that almost kind of social removal burnout, <laughs> you know, which isn't, is, is a phrase I've just made up, but this idea <laughs> yeah. of like, I'm sort of burnt out on that type of socialising now. And I need, I just want to be around people again. Yeah, Bobby, and you know what? It's so interesting because we're, we're getting to the point where you just want to be able to go to a restaurant freely or to round to a friend's house freely. And actually, it's not kicked in yet. I mean, it has for a lot of us in some ways, but not, you know, when you look at stadiums are empty, football matches, festivals haven't been on over the summer, theatres, you know, that next level mm. of socialising, like I love festivals. The thought of when are we ever going to be in that space again? You know, when you're literally packed in with people, but you're all feeling that artist that's on stage or you're just in a moment, you know, people that are like real festival goers, you live for that, all in it together, you know, loving the music, enjoying life. Like it's like the most amazing, uplifting experience because you are all there together and even if lockdown, when it ends and we're allowed to kind of trinkle back out, when will we ever get to that level of thousands of people or hundreds of people just being free together, creating a moment? And that's quite something that I think I've put it away in a box. And it wasn't until mm. I was talking about it the other day and thought, my God, you know, that's the next level, isn't it? That's far away. <laughs> What can you say? Who knows when that'll happen again? Mm. But you're right. And I thought I'd never be missing crowds, but mm. I miss crowds. And we don't have the German market in the city centre this year. I you know, know, so for every other year, I'm complaining about, like, don't get me wrong, I actually love the German market. But if you're trying to yeah. quickly run to the post office and you're yeah. fighting through these crowds, you love it a bit less. And actually, yeah. I even miss that. I even miss the annoyance of crowds. Moaning about it, yeah. Yeah. I know what you mean. You come to the city when you're used to it. I live, I don't live like Bobby does right in the city, but I already live like a couple of stops out. And you're right, you're in the city so much and the German market does your head when you're so used to it. It's like, oh my, there's people everywhere. You can't move, can you? It's like the whole length of You just go around it a lot of the time, yeah. yeah. But now it's not there. <laughs> now I miss the detour. It's it's such a weird feeling. But I think that's what a lot of us are feeling. It's that mixture. And I think I'd sort of managed to placate that somehow by focusing in on a lot of technological communication. And that was sort of helping. Whereas now I'm I'm missing the two extremes even more. I'm missing the like the people I'm really close to, being around them, being in their space eating together, staying at friends' houses. And then at the other end of that, I'm missing strangers, mm. you know, which is, it's all part of the same human experience, but vastly different ends. And it's all part of what we need, I think, to feel connected. And you're right, we don't have the quite gusto of we're all in this together and, you know, the same perhaps naive optimism of the first lockdown. Because mm. I very much went into it thinking, you know, I'll bed down, I'll do my best. We've got plenty of podcasting to be getting on with, with our special series that we did. And I'll focus on all of that. And then a date will be announced when we come out of lockdown. And then I very quickly realised there will be no off switch for this lockdown. You'll come into it suddenly, but you'll go out very slowly. And then here we are starting that cycle again. Absolutely, Bobby. And I think when you mentioned them, we had our series to focus on. And I think we went into like an autopilot of we can be there, hopefully, to help our listeners through this and with our guests coming on and things like that. And that kept us going a little bit. 
And now I was speaking to a client the other day who I had to cancel. We'd put a date in the diary. He was saying, what's really difficult is in the job that we do within the mental health field, Mm -hmm. you're there. It feels somewhat now really quite difficult to coach or to support in this moment when with I'm feeling I need help myself. It's really hit me this time, whereas in the summer, I felt still full of power, if you like, to be able to maybe make a difference to somebody else. And after this last few weeks, I am really yeah. struggling to find that, you know. I think you've I think you've got it right there, actually, that we were able to find optimism. You mm. found things to focus on. You found things to pour your energy into. And as much as it was scary and uncertain, we literally were finding potential positives, you know, as part of our episodes. And this time we've done a lot of that already so now it kind of feels like that's being dashed that we built up a lot of the things we were doing we were feeling like some parts of our lives were getting a bit more normal again Mm -hmm. and then that's gone absolutely and it's the type of work that we do you know I've been thinking I just need to go and get a job in a factory or at Costa Coffee where I can just be functional you know, trying to make a difference, trying to help and support other people. I've lost that in myself, or not lost totally, but it's very thin. It's diluted at the moment for me, you know. Difficult because, you know, to deliver and be be present for what people need. And the podcast has been brilliant for that. But again, you know, as our listeners will probably be able to tell today, we're at the point, just like everybody else is, it's just hard. Right. And I guess to, to continue that theme of potential positive, so there is one. Yeah, We've been closely, closely, closely watching the election results in the state. And, you know, I've never known the whole world seemingly be so focused on this. And I think a lot of it is that we maybe have the time, that we maybe do have more time sat inside with our Mm. Twitter feed or with the news on in the background like you do. And, yeah, people are, are really focused on it and... I don't know, Bob. I think even if we weren't in lockdown, this was a big one. Well, I guess so. Okay. (laughs) Getting rid of Trump was always going to be a big one. And you didn't know how it was going to go. You know, I watched it on the first night and I made the mistake of being like, I'm going to stay up for it. And part of the reason why I wanted to stay up for it was because I was looking for that feel good. I was looking for my guy to win and, you know, Mm. to have that, that feeling of some more hope coming in. And something to root for that would pay off when so much that we're rooting for, like an end to the pandemic and a vaccine is is coming a lot slower. I somehow thought I was going to get that in a night. And of course, several days later, we finally have the projection come through that we know who our next president is in the States. I know. I'm going without a fight though, is it? I feel like I'm still not... And we're still not at a point where everybody's truly celebrating. I mean, looking at the scenes in America, they are out there. I mean, they're dancing in the streets and all the rest of it. But it still feels a little bit like the Wicked Witch isn't quite (laughs) He's still floating around. Yeah, although interestingly, I saw a report today from CNN that apparently Melania is the latest person trying to convince him that he's lost and he needs to give up. Really? Yeah. Apparently his kids are slowly sort of slowing down with that kind of rhetoric about the the election being stolen and all of this, because initially they were very much pulling that line with him. So it seems like even his own family are trying to get him to call it a day now. 
oh, well, thank God, because I'm thinking to myself, surely there are people that, or may have, you know, there must be so many Republicans and so many people that are his family and friends who supported him up to a point. And then logic, not all of them are as irrational and narcissistic as him. So surely someone is saying to him somewhere, you know, it's time to respectfully, gracefully, Dover yeah. now, some surely. Dignity. Keep some dignity. So we'll we'll see if that happens. I'm not holding my breath, but I'll be interested to see. But one thing that was magical for me, this isn't final, but I strongly suspect that Joe Biden will end up winning by 306 electoral college votes, which was the amount Donald Trump won in mm-hmm. 2016. And so I think that's such a perfect kind of twist of fate in a way to be like, not only is he out he celebrated that margin so much and now someone else has got it and not just that no president-elect has ever got as many votes i know you know the turnout was massive you know i i wonder if it will change i wonder if a lot of people that maybe never voted before but this time voted by mail maybe they do that again you know maybe this there's uh the voting by mail will become a a much bigger part of Mm. how things are done why not? I mean, it helps everybody, doesn't it? All the barriers, those those secret barriers that are put up that stop people that are getting to the polling stations that may be poorer, maybe have got to travel quite far. You know, those people that just can't physically go and vote. And actually, interestingly, talking about our topic, the episode today around masculinity, looking at these two men, how polar different they are, what Trump thinks he's representing is such an old school, toxic sense of whatever he believes masculinity is to be and and that's it they are both quite old school you know partly because of their ages in many ways but no you're right they're very different types of masculinity and we know which one we're rooting for but also obviously we've got the huge progress with Kamala Harris who was my favourite actually back in the primaries. She's who I wanted to get Joe Biden's part of the ticket, you know, originally. And I think that's a sign of strength of character that she was so successful in tearing him down during those debates. And, And really, in one of them, made a right show of him. And yet he had the bravery to see that she was the best person to team up with. That's something that I don't know if, if Donald Trump would ever do. That's a sign of bravery and, you know, people worry about his age. But if anything were to happen and he had to step down, I'm not going to be upset with who the vice president taking over would be. Well, absolutely. And it's funny because Ella said, my daughter, she's 10, said the same thing to me. And I I found myself talking to her about it and having to be really aware of what I was saying because these are are going to be words. We're watching Kamala Harris give her speech together. But we spoke about Biden and I made a comment about his age, not a geography one, but just a statement. And she went, so, and what does that mean? Not in, in no way with a tone or being a little bit like, her, what are you trying to say? Literally, naively, innocently said, and what does that mean, mummy, that he's 78 or 77, nearly 78? And I thought, nothing, means nothing, Ella, absolutely nothing. Yeah, there may be some health implications, but there may be some if you're 40. Like, and it really brought me back to mean like it means nothing when a child is naively asking you. I thought you're absolutely right. Good question, kid. It means nothing. Well, that's it. I, like, I do hear the concerns. But then at the same time, a lot of people are trying to use that as a way to say Trump over Biden. And I'm like, they're, they're so similar in age. And also this one hasn't had COVID. True. But to be fair... 
you're right. I mean, when Ella asked me that question, I did think it means nothing up until that point. And still now, you know, would I have preferred to have seen, if I'm totally honest, you know, a president-elect that's not 78 years old? Perhaps, yeah. You know what I mean? There's so much that goes with that as well. But I, that wouldn't hold... It, it, it so outweighs anybody else, so outweighs Trump. I'm actually not bothered at this point. And that, that sounds weird too, who it was, as long as it's not him. Really felt I really felt strongly about that. But as you said, I, and I, I didn't hope we didn't talk about the point you just made about Kamala Harris being, you know, what she said about him and the bravery that he showed in still electing her. That to me is masculinity. He was vulnerable in those moments. He was brave when it came to being brave because he put himself out there to be exposed. He's had to make some choices to have a woman and a black woman in power with him. That's masculinity, because that's bravery, and that's, like, risk-taking and not, you know, I love that about him. And, and also I would go as far as to say that every president has wanted a strong woman by their side. It just happens to be usually their wife. So there's already a long history of women supporting a man leading the White House. But, you know, this power that she has is unprecedented. The first woman to hold that position, the first mixed race person to hold that position. Obviously, in America, they often describe her as black. We could get into the whole historical context of that another time. First person of Indian descent, first person that's characterised, at least in American politics, as being African-American. And also the first partner of a president or vice president that's a man. And so at the moment, there's actually a debate going on in terms of Kamala's husband, what do you even call him? Because there's always been the first lady and the second lady to the extent where, you know, if you look at the official Twitter account that was obviously Michelle Obama's, now is Melania's, it's an abbreviation, FLOTUS, it's an abbreviation of uh, first lady of the United States. And so it kind of reminded me of something Juno, our guest uh, in the first part of the gender and mental health miniseries, she often talks about one of the ways we can sort of take some of the power out of gender and the ways that it can sometimes divide us is just by removing it. So maybe the debate shouldn't be, okay, do we need a new term? And we we change it from, you know, first lady of the United States, people are now suggesting first gentleman. And that's often, as far as I know, what they use with mayors in the States. So that's kind of the default that they would use, therefore, with a vice president. But it does kind of make you wonder certainly for something like a Twitter handle, maybe it's second partner of the United States or second spouse of the United States. Wow, that's a whole new, yeah, other thought, <laughs> isn't it? Pronouns are we using? Why are we using any? Why are we leaving it? You're absolutely right. I mean, they've all got a name, you know? It could just be a name. Everybody's got, yeah, that's so interesting, the first lady. Well, that's Everybody. it. I'm, I'm not trying to take gender away from it. It's it's a very powerful thing that's happened. And, and I'm so proud of particularly Kamala. It's a whole new conversation. People are mm. not even sure what they call her husband. And it does raise questions of whether some of this uh, gendering is, is creating complication. You know, it's mm -hmm. not that it's necessarily wrong, but yeah. the Twitter account certainly to me is the clearest example of how, what, do we <laughs> do we change it? Each time now. Mm -hmm. 
interesting conversation. So yeah, so there's that. And then I watched a bit of, because I was binge watching the news, I watched a bit of the RTE news, uh, the Irish coverage, and they're delighted because Joe Biden's of Irish heritage. Yeah. As well, he's very keen on protecting the Good Friday peace agreement. And yeah. And Kamala Harris is of Jamaican heritage. So we've got it all going on. Exciting. Yeah, her husband is the first partner of a president or vice president who's Jewish as well, I found out today. Oh. Uh, the whole list, a whole list of firsts and all of that on top of them getting more votes than any president and vice president ever. Yay! Yeah, so some something to hope for between that and Christmas and also a potential new vaccine. Yeah, let's see what that brings. I'm not kind of holding out a bunch about that. We'll see. Let's see what <laughs> With that all said, there's a little bit of a break from our usual format and we just really wanted to check in with our listeners really, you know, coming into the second lockdown, how everyone's feeling. Feel free to drop us an email via the website or leave us a review if you have any thoughts, positive or negative, on the episodes recently. We always love to hear from you. And so with that all said, we'll introduce our guest. They are a repeat guest, Piers Harrison-Reed, who was previously on our Hope from the Frontline episode. If you remember the A&E nurse who wrote a poem all about the NHS for its 70th birthday that he then reformulated for the pandemic, and we played that actually in that episode. So I'll link that in the description. If you haven't caught that, it's a very powerful episode where we talk to frontline workers, all kinds of backgrounds about their experience and the hope that they're finding in this crazy, challenging time. So we're delighted to have him back, obviously talking about quite a different theme, although there may well be crossover. We (laughs) recorded it like, I think, a month or two ago now. But brilliant episode, wonderful conversation. He's such a delightful person and we're really delighted to have him back. So please enjoy our full episode with Pierce Harrison-Reed. But first, who's our sponsor? Let's find out. So this week we're actually our own sponsors to tell you all about our new show, Dating Games, the Modern Relationships Podcast. If you... Wait, I've got to interrupt you, huh? it's hilarious. We are our own sponsors. I just, I just <laughs> love that. I've got to keep that in. So this week we are actually our own sponsors. Well, if we're not going to big ourselves up, who else is, Bob? Yeah, I, I realise the catch of that maybe sounds like nobody wants to have our ads. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way. Right. That's not true. No, we are wrapping ourselves. It's important. And we appreciate all the support we get from our listeners here on Mental. So we're hoping if you haven't already, you take a chance on our new podcast. It's all about dating and relationships. I know it's a strange time to have a podcast like that. But actually, maybe that's all the more reason we need it. Yeah. And I know I, for one, am pilfering all the best tips from our guests. And so on the show, I mainly interview comedians, but also friends of me and friends of the podcast and hear about their funny, awkward, ridiculous dating stories and what we can all get from them. Also, Danielle joins me once a month for a bit of analysis and you also tell some stories of your own like how you met Anthony yeah and I love that because um not the stories of my own but I love um talking about the guests that we've had and their dating experiences I think for me because I've been in my relationship for so long and lived my single life through my friends it's brilliant yeah I really urge 
the listeners of Mental, if you haven't already, as Bob said, to go over and listen to Dating Games because you see a completely different side of Bobby and you hear personal stories from, as he said, comedians and our friends. And I actually think Bobby's the perfect time to launch it because what more do we need than a bit of light relief and a bit of fun to just listen to now we're back in a second lockdown thank you i agree so if this sounds interesting or you know what even if it doesn't go take a risk you can find it by just searching dating games or my name wherever you find your podcast and the link will be in the episode description as well so go listen thank you in advance So my name is Pierce Harrison Reed, and I guess the first time I became aware of mental health affecting people's lives, I think I probably was about five or six years of age. My parents had just split up. I was living in Sheffield at the time. And I think as a child, you're not necessarily that aware of of mental health, first of all, but I think the way emotions affect how people interact with each other. But I remember my my father being quite sad, my mum trying to then figure out what her life was as a single parent, essentially, with me and my sister in the middle of a big city where she was working full time and trying to establish herself and get a new house and all the stress that goes with that. So I think I was aware of my father, you know, being, I think, surprised, but also quite negatively hurt by the breakdown in relationship, but also my mum's struggles with her own stress levels and her own kind of spiral. Even though she's been, you know, an incredible mum throughout, I think there was a lot of kind of cracks in the armour that came about because of all the stress. I don't think I was necessarily aware of mental health or consciously aware of mental health until maybe a little bit later on. But I definitely was aware then of the impact of stress on interpersonal relationships and the impact of the breakdown of relationships on on how people see themselves to at least a very superficial degree. I think when you're a five-year-old, six-year-old, I think it's quite difficult to truly understand what people are going through because you're so focused on, I don't know, running around and eating stuff and, you know, getting infections from licking too many door handles and stuff like that. But yeah, I definitely think that like later on, it was probably my early teens, maybe like more aware of people around my age having, you know, quite severe mental health issues. And I definitely, I think when I was 14 or 15, I'd heard of the first few people that I knew as acquaintances who'd killed themselves. And I think that's the first time it really kind of hit me personally that a lot of people, especially young men in the community I was in, in the heavy metal community, but also just across the board, young people dealing with the increased stress and the increased difficulty with kind of how they saw themselves inside of society affecting people in quite strange ways. And so, yeah, I think that's the kind of, that's probably the first time I was like truly aware of mental health being something I needed to focus on, even if it was dissimilar to what I understood of it when I was really young. I think that's the first time I was really conscious about it. Right. And do you remember looking back now, if there was a contrast between how your parents were about struggling? You know, do you feel like one was more honest or open or were they both trying to kind of protect you from that? Um, I think there was a difference. So my mum is white British and my dad is uh, was born in England, but his parents are from Jamaica and Cuba. So I think there was a, a difference in culture in the way that people mm-hmm. kind of show, especially men, show emotions between England and and Jamaica, where his brothers and sisters were brought up. But I think he showed his emotions in a way which I think was informed by that, but also he's he's been very focused on, you know, being a, a British, a young black British man, and trying to find a way of, I guess, also engaging with British culture. So I, I definitely feel like there was, he was quite open in comparison to some of the Caribbean culture, but he was less open than maybe some British men are. So I think I, I remember seeing him cry when I was maybe 
seven or eight, and that being quite shocking to me, because I think when you see your role models, your idols crying, I think that it really, it kind of normalizes that to a point, but I think it also is kind of terrifying that somebody that you care about and respect would be struggling that much as well. So I, I think we don't really talk about it as much as I think we could. And I've been very open with my mum in the past about the way that she deals with things. And I think that she is quite stoic in some ways, but is also quite happy to talk about things if need be. I think both of them realistically, from meeting some of my friends' families, both of them were much more happy to talk about their emotions than a lot of a lot of my friends' parents were. So I think that's it kind of equipped me. Obviously, like a lot of what I do now is speaking about my emotions through poetry. I think that is probably learned from both my parents as well, but I just think in quite different ways. Yeah, that's really interesting. And again, with the differences you saw with your parents there, I can understand how shocking that would have been seeing your dad cry. I'm assuming that was something you'd never seen from him before. No. Was that something you'd seen with your mum? Yeah, yeah, I think so. I also, like, I went and spent time with my dad more infrequently once my parents had split up, and I was was with mum all the time. So I think that I saw more of her emotional kind of ups and downs, even though she's quite stoic and that there wasn't as much kind of of a rollercoaster of emotions, but I, I definitely was more used to her emotions than I was my dad's. So I think that when, and it was, I think he was crying in a positive way at the time because he'd got a new job, but he, he had to move away. So it was a kind of weird mixture of emotions there. And I think, you know, I think he was probably a bit embarrassed about being seen in that vulnerable way, but I don't think he ever seemed to imply that it was bad that he was emotional. You know, I don't think it was something that he was trying to press down and pretend it wasn't happening. But I, I think there was probably a balance there where I think it's always difficult to be vulnerable in front of people that you know you're supposed to be strong in front of. So yeah, it's a strange time. It's a strange time. But equally now, I feel like I'm relatively open emotionally. No, I get that. And I think that's so positive that you found that because there can be such a narrative, this idea of men don't cry, which Mm -hmm. not only is it like a stranglehold for many men, it also scares everyone else, right? Because this idea that if a man is crying, something truly devastating must have happened. Whereas mm-hmm. if a woman is crying, it's often brushed off mm-hmm. as women are like that. So everyone is harmed with this kind of narrative. Yeah, for sure, for sure. I think I think there's a lot of people. So just I, I kind of came through the heavy metal community when I was young. I was really into quite kind of heavy metal music. And within that, I think there's this hyper-masculinity which a lot of the time I think is very restrictive in the amount that men can really express themselves. And it harms, you know, they, they, I mean, there's a full, there's a lot of misogyny and a lot of homophobia within that community as well. But I think obviously those things are outwardly harmful. But I think with the hypermasculinity and the fact that even though we're all, you know, interesting, multifaceted human beings, the culture that we exist in sometimes just only allows you to be like successful if you show masculinity in certain ways. That can only really kind of negatively affect the people within that community as well. And so I think that I was quite lucky to to have, you know, parents who were open, you know, with me emotionally, but also have other things in my life that I cared about outside of the metal community. So I was I was already reading poetry, writing poetry. I was already into different kinds of music. I was already into different kinds of kind of art. And so I think that allowed me the opportunity to see that you can be masculine in different ways. You can be successful and happy if you express yourself in different ways to this like over the top hyper masculinity. Whereas I think some of the people who were in that community at the same time, I could see that they were kind of struggling against to really express themselves without it turning into something super negative and super masculine. And that, I think, harmed them over the next few years because they were so deeply into this kind of very restrictive culture, which is strange because I think a lot of people outside the male community think it's don't necessarily associate it with that. 
And a lot of people inside the metal community don't necessarily associate with that. But when I was growing up through it, there was certain very obvious flaws with it. Some of my friends really struggled and I didn't feel like I was able to help them because I felt like their the way they saw emotions being expressed within that community, they thought that was the only real way to do it. And it took me a while to kind of grow through that and realize that there's better ways to grow and better better ways to engage with people. Yeah. No, that's really fascinating. Speaking as an outsider to that kind of music, I've only ever been to a metal bar once. And Mm. so I think looking in, you see that people, you know, maybe dress in a certain way. They have Mm. like an intense knowledge about this type of music. And it can look like a kind of freedom that, you know, they're maybe more tattooed or they're more, to me, kind of goth looking in their their clothing style and that kind of thing. That, that seems like a type of freedom, but actually the way you're describing it, they were just conforming to another type of masculinity and actually one yeah. where they have to present in perhaps an even more specific way to fit within their subgroup. Yeah. yeah, yeah, I think it's strange. I think that there's parts of heavy metal which are quite elitist and you're kind of not, it's called like true and false. So you're not like truly a metal fan unless you listen to these bands and dress in this way and treat people in this way and engage with people culturally in this way. And then if you're essentially outcast because you don't fit the certain inclusion criteria for that very specific subgroup of metal, then you then could potentially lose your friends or you could potentially not be able to engage with people within that subgroup. So it it feels like even though there's theoretically a lot of freedom there, and you know, I, I agree, I think there's a lot of freedom in expression in very certain ways. So heavy metal's very good for kind of expressing passion, expressing anger and expressing angst. But I don't think it's necessarily always as good for expressing some of the more, what seems more feminine traits, you know, to, to be particularly caring or to be kind of kind, forgiving, all the things which I think are really detrimentally listed as some something feminine. And within those groups, because they're listed as something feminine, because there's so much misogyny there, they're kind of driven to the outskirts. So I'd say there's a lot of freedom for like, yeah, passion, but not necessarily as much freedom for like, kindness and honesty which is a bit frustrating i think but also the whole idea of being an alternative subculture is to try and get that kind of individuality and and figure out who you are when you're young but if there's so many rules about what you can be then that's not really true freedom is it is you're being free but within these very strange yeah constrictions you know so yeah it's like you can figure yourself out but only if the conclusion you come to is this exact person who already exists and is not you exactly Exactly. And I, I think that was very much like the most toxic parts of the hypermachismo scene in the metal community. But it, there was definitely times when I was I was very, very aware that I wasn't like metal enough for the different groups I was coming into contact with. And that I didn't personally want to be, but that's because I think I had a kind of self-confidence that you can only get by seeing that this isn't the entire world. You know, I think if you've been, if you found a community which you feel like you truly belong to, and then you don't you cut yourself off from all the other communities. I think it's very difficult to see past that because all your friends, all your support networks are in place there. And I just was just quite lucky that I had different experiences to draw from to see that actually I didn't really want to be free in that kind of way. I don't particularly care about appealing to people who you know have restricted themselves in that way. The metal community did a lot for me growing up, but I think also I was quite happy that I didn't have to, didn't feel like I had to rely on it or didn't feel like I had to conform to it in the ways that I think a lot of other people felt. Yeah. I can see that. And with those that you mentioned that really struggled with their mental health in that group, were you aware of that? Or was it it really when it got very bad? I think I was aware of it at times. And one of my close friends who always kind of struggled with his mental health, but it wasn't necessarily listed in that way earlier on in his life. I think it was just, you know, 
sometimes people have difficulty socializing for a variety of reasons. So there was times when it, it seemed less like a mental health issue and more like a socialization issue, but then it kind of developed, I think, potentially through the stress that he was having with kind of socializing or through the stress that he was having with being feeling like a bit of an outcast that then manifested in a poor mental state, which then made those things worse. So it kind of drove itself forwards and, and made him cut himself off more and really deal with really quite dark times and experiences without being able to seek much help. And I'm not sure that can be really blamed on the metal community, but I think that within the metal community, there is sometimes, I think there's, there's a reliance on hypermasculinity and the fact that you just, you're stoic and you don't really talk about those things because that's not what real men do. And I think that probably contributed to it in some way. Yeah, no, I can really see that. And again, it's like that sort of narrative I mentioned where we're allowed to be emotional, but only when things are really bad, we've got to justify our yep. sadness and what I've talked about on the podcast before is this idea that men are kind of allowed two emotions we can be happy and we can be angry yep. and I can really see that from what you're describing yeah yeah for sure but I mean equally like I was I was involved in different communities especially around kind of music which I think were also kind of quite negative so like I'm really into hip-hop and rap and within a lot of especially the gangster rap that I was consuming, there's a lot of misogyny, there's a lot of homophobia, and there's still a lot of this hyper-masculinity, potentially influenced by Caribbean culture, but equally, it, it meant that I think I was seeing you know, powerful men in, in creative positions which I thought were really awesome, and they were creating music which I really liked, but then the lives they seemed to be living were, they seemed restrictive still to me. And it, equally with a lot of car- kind of uh, Caribbean music, dancehall and reggae, uh, because in, especially in Jamaica, there's a lot of, misogyny but also there's quite a lot of really aggressive homophobia i was seeing that from kind of parts of my family and parts of the culture that i was taking in as well and so i think that there was a huge amount of people who was showing that this high masculinity wasn't necessarily for me but also that it seemed really rife yeah i can see that 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 you were seeing this set of expectations but also Mm -hmm. so many of the flaws of it yeah for sure for sure and do you feel like with the homophobia in particular do you think there was an element that gay people are often stereotyped as being more feminine and that was part of for sure for sure and i think i think say in jamaican culture some of the really aggressive homophobia that you see it seems to be kind of out of fear that because they they see themselves as like it's good to be like a really really strong man that somehow this kind of idea of femininity going to rub off on them and somehow affect them in some way which they can't control so it feels like that kind of aggression facing outwards is because they feel relatively vulnerable themselves which seems insane because there have been lots of you know anti-gay hate crimes committed across the caribbean and the idea that that would always almost always come from fear that men aren't quite strong enough just seems crazy to me is you know like how can you turn that kind of hate outwards because you're so afraid that they might either turn you gay or make you more feminine and the idea that femininity or or homosexuality is somehow something negative without even really engaging with it it just feels like it really affects all the cultures that i've existed in that i've listed in a way which means that men just can't really truly express themselves just out of pure fear that they're not going to be successful yeah it is such a strange paradox and i wonder to what extent that is to do with that narrow ideas of masculinity that that, that's such a threat to them and yet you don't see it applied to women right you can settle down with a woman and invite her into your home and her femininity Mm. is heralded you know it's it's sort of held up as an obvious good thing and no way would living with a woman be a threat to she's going to make me girly Mm mm-hmm yeah, for sure. It's, it doesn't 
it doesn't necessarily make that much sense. But equally, do we see that? Do we see a reaction against that in this culture by saying it's like the classic kind of lads or like public narrative of oh the old ball and chain and she's doing this thing again crazy women is that a way for them to try and protect themselves against the implication that by living closely with a woman they will become more more like a woman they kind of undermine it and say oh I, you know i love her but also she's crazy in this way or she's doing this in this way and the idea that people aren't really engaging with kind of housework for it being you know them being seen as you know feminine and the mental load being something which traditionally women have taken on board and men really really don't help with I think that's the English version of of that kind of fear of becoming more feminine or fear of femininity or fear of homosexuality. Yeah, and if the listeners aren't sure about what the mental load is, there's a brilliant illustration in The Guardian that explains it. And at the core of it, it's talking about the elements of a home situation that a woman is responsible for, where even if she's not doing all of the work, all of the work is somehow her responsibility. So women, well... This is mainly referring to, although not exclusively, heterosexual families and the idea that even the tasks that the man does, he's doing them because he's somehow being managed, right? That the woman has to still remember the tasks and remind him. Yeah, although he's doing them as a favour to the woman because it's essentially her job and that that is fundamentally a toxic way of working in a partnership. So the idea that you have to be told to do how to do something, do it, and then they kind of have to check on the job that's been done. But somehow you're then the good guy because you've helped them do the washing or something. It's like, no, there should be a, a group effort. You know, we're both living in this space, but that's something that we're still kind of battling with, I think, in our culture. Yeah, that yeah. I've done my own washing and somehow she should be grateful. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's a really interesting concept. And so that's the idea of the the mental load, these additional things that predominantly women have to think about. But I think maybe there is an equivalent in same-sex households as well, that potentially one partner ends up being expected to do more of that. So Yeah, I, yeah. Sure. And so in terms of your experience then through your teen years and starting to see friends really struggle with their mental health, how was that kind of responded to, uh, particularly when certain friends were becoming suicidal? I think there's a small group of friends who would come through the heavy metal community, but kind of diversified around our mid-teens. Um, I think we'd been heavily influenced by, like I said, quite uh, negative, over-the-top hypermasculinity traits. But I think that we'd kind of started to turn against that and people had started to focus on other forms of culture, which were slightly more beneficial to their expression and emotional expression so i think by the time that people were really struggling with mental health and probably the kind of like sixth form time i think we'd become more in touch with how to communicate with each other and we'd known each other for such a long time that i think that we were able to support each other in to at least some extent i think we were able to have conversations about our emotions in a way which is non-judgmental and we're able to kind of offer some help even if that help might not have been quite enough because we're all going through stuff at the same time right so i think we were able to discuss things the issue always becomes if there is a lot of shame attached to emotional expression and mental health even if your friends and parents are happy to talk about it with you if you've got that shame within you then i think it's difficult for you necessarily to seek help and so i think that's where we were at is that i I felt like our group of friends was happy to talk about it and were supportive and relatively engaged and honest and aware of mental health but I think the people who were struggling the most still had a learned shame about expressing themselves or a learned shame about acknowledging that they had mental health issues. And that potentially slowed down the amount of help they could get from the group and any other coping strategies that they had. So 
I think looking back, I think we could always do more, but we were very lucky in that none of our, you know, close group members have, have had severe mental health crises, which have put them in hospital or, or have killed themselves. I think we must have done enough in the situation, but there was definitely times when I was really worried and still am about some of my close friends. I just keep on trying to, you know, keep in contact and, and making it everybody's job to try and mend those bridges. I never want to put the onus of people's mental health and need to seek help on them, because I think if you're really struggling, then you're probably going to be unwilling to seek help. So I always try and get in contact with friends who I'm worried about just to send out an olive branch if we haven't spoken in a little while and make sure that they have the opportunity to speak to me if they want to. But it's difficult to know when to do that sometimes. Yeah, but I think that's a really important approach that we can expect the answers to always come from those that are suffering, right? Mm -hmm. We wouldn't expect that, certainly in a medical capacity. You wouldn't For turn sure. to your sure. patient and say, what, what do you think the answer is here? You know, there's, yeah, yeah, yeah. there's a basic acknowledgement, even on things that many people could potentially be a part of their care, if they're struggling enough, they may be quite helpless to, to yeah, support yeah, themselves yeah. at times. And something you've reminded me of, which I feel was something I really had to learn or perhaps unlearn, was my approach to supporting friends. That I think what I'd seen from a lot of male role models in my life growing up was a very kind of linear, logical, fix-it mentality. That a friend yeah, would be sure. struggling and I'd want to jump in with solutions and sort of manage them out of it, manage the situation. Yeah. And something I've had to really learn is the ability to sit with someone in the feelings that particularly when it comes to mental health, so much of people's struggles are long-term and there is no easy fix. And, sure. you know, looking back on it now, I can see that that was partly an uncomfortability with my own feelings, right? That when empathising with friends who are struggling, that then made me sad and that sadness I'd been taught to push down. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Or push yeah. away. And when I was growing up, I think I was much happier offering non-judgmental just time to sit with people's emotions to women much I was much happier doing that than with my male friends I feel like with my male friends it felt certainly early on like that kind of task focused fix it mentality and it's been I've I agree I've kind of had to untrain myself from that in order to do the same as I was I think with my female friends but with my male friends like the idea that you know your sadness it doesn't need to go anywhere and it doesn't we don't need to rush it along we don't need to ignore it we don't need to squash it Sometimes it, it just is. It just is what it is. And to really be with people in that space, non-judgmentally and supportively, I think is something that took me quite a while to get to with my male friends. But I think it's, it comes down to like love, right? How do you show that you love someone without feeling like when you're sitting with someone's emotions, there isn't a, an end goal with that necessarily. It's not an amount of time that you can allot. You just have to, you know, sit with them and be with them for potentially an extended period of time. And I think that love allows that and allows you to really give that time to people indiscriminately and without an end whereas i think when it's task focused it feels like oh i'm here for this amount of time we'll get this done and then you'll be mentally well and we can go and do something else more fun so maybe i was just too focused on my own kind of aims and like the reason whatever reason i was kind of hanging out with that friend at that time was maybe too close in my mind maybe it was just kind of a kind of a selfish way of dealing with somebody else's emotional instability or chaos wow i think that's such a good way of phrasing it and, and I love the way you've talked about love there right because the idea that you loving someone is conditional on their emotional state is so yeah, oppressive yeah, yeah. and we've talked yeah, about it sure. previously on the show in terms of self-love that it's not proper self-love if you're like 
oh, I'll be chill with me when I've reached all of these targets or when I have this job, I'll like myself or when I lose this weight. You've got to find a way to love yourself through the journey and love yourself for that progress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, it's so great to hear that you saw that need with other people. Yeah, for sure it is. And, you know, it's not something which I feel like I've finished. You know, I think it's still something which you have to keep going through, both in self-love and for other people. We'd like to think that we've learned our lessons and we never have to relearn them. But I think, you know, life goes on and you sometimes move away from what your, you know, good intentions are into something else. And so I think it's, we always have to come back and center ourselves and say, you know what, well, actually, I don't feel like I'm loving myself or this person well enough at the moment. What can I do to be better? What can I do to help more and, and be more comfortable in my own skin? Because it's an ongoing process, love, I think. It's, it's something which is always will take some degree of effort to kind of be good at. And I think that I sometimes can get quite lazy with my love, I think, both for myself and other people. I think it, it takes so much kind of time to listen and kind of grow and learn that it's it's always going to continue on so and I'm, I'm happy for the journey you know i i enjoy sometimes forgetting that life isn't necessarily supposed to always be easy it's supposed to be an interesting experience where we move through different stages of ourselves and kind of keep on growing and learning so yeah definitely well it's such a sort of fairy tale narrative isn't it that you get to a certain point in your life and then suddenly you're good at love. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Or you're just good at life, right? That everything yeah, yeah, yeah. works and you have your happily ever after. And uh, I keep on waiting for the day where I wake up and like everything makes sense and everything is good and, and like nothing hurts. And then realizing, you know what, that day is never going to come. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm actually very content at this point in my life and I'm very happy with how much I've achieved and very happy with all the people that I love. But it's still never going to be a point where I feel completely completely like everything is going exactly how I want it to be because I don't think I'll ever get to that point I don't think I really know what that means I I don't really know if it's within capability no I don't think there's always yearning yeah not without effort at least there's still upkeep in that that version of contentedness it's funny for me to think about because I'm not even sure I would be content like if I reached some perfect point in my life I'd be like now what what do I fill my day with yeah, 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 for sure. I think it's partly the way it's depicted in mainstream media, because say with a film, there has to be some like end, right? There has to be, there's some trials and tribulations, and then suddenly you reach this final point where everything is good, everything is going to go, be good forever. And it just, life doesn't really work like that. You know, the end of a film has to be, well, a lot of the time has to be happy, but it's not representative of the final end of anything. It's just, you know, one step, one story, a life of stories. For sure. And was there a particular point in your life where you most needed uh, support with your mental health? I think probably sixth form. Yeah, probably my time in sixth form. I think I, I was going through like multiple changes at the time. I think I was like becoming more aware of my own sexuality, but also in a way which I think I still was kind of quite juvenile in the way that I thought about, especially sexuality, but also my own kind of internal monologue and emotions. And that was balanced with doing quite a tough course at, uh, at Sixth Form. So I was an international baccalaureate student where I had to juggle quite a lot of different, like, different subjects at once. At the same time, as kind of starting to get really into performance and starting to get really into writing. And so I ended up, I think, having a lot of stress on my plate, which was a lot of it was self-created, but I don't think I had the coping strategies or emotional stability or even really energy to deal with it in the right way at the time. So I think that's probably the, the lowest I've been was probably related to those particular stresses. But I was, I was diagnosed with mild depression then, and there was some discussion about mood-stabilizing drugs at the time. But then I was, I, and still am, 
under the impression that the stresses themselves, because they were relatively fleeting, it was kind of dependent on, you know, the stress I put myself under and the course that I was on. If I could get through those things in a logical way and start making more progress, then I would probably settle emotionally a bit. And that happened. So I was quite lucky at the end of sixth form. I felt like I was, I took a gap year and I felt like I could focus on learning the coping strategies I needed to deal with any upcoming stress. And since then, I've been mostly emotionally stable. You know, there's been ups and downs, but I definitely think there was a time in sixth form that I could have really spiraled. And I just about had the coping strategies in place and the support networks in place that allowed me to kind of keep on going. I think a lot of that comes down as well to getting really into writing poetry and really into understanding my own emotions through that at the time. Otherwise, I think I'd be in a very quite a different place. So. Yeah, for sure. Having that outlet is so helpful. And may I ask what it was in terms of your sexuality you were grappling with? As a young person, I was very aware. I grew up in Essex. I was very aware of young people, you know, having sex quite early and coming into relationships quite early, having kids quite early and being quite unhappy with that. And so I think that I subconsciously, like, intentionally didn't really want to get into sexual relationships until I felt, you know, truly ready, whatever that means. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was reluctant to really engage with that part of my life and that part of my kind of sexual development until I, you know, felt completely and honestly ready. And I don't think anybody necessarily feels ready to engage with that part of their life. So I think that, that I was going through kind of an internal battle where I didn't want to be statistic of teenage pregnancy, essentially, but also I didn't really allow myself the kind of emotional freedom and enjoyment of discovering that part of myself until slightly later on. I think that just kind of caused a bit of internal conflict, it was like the logic side of my brain trying to fight against the kind of emotional side of my brain within sixth form. So. Yeah, I can see that. It is something I look back on now and I wonder about with my own teen years, how many of my friends would have started engaging in sexual activity as mm. soon if there wasn't a, the peer pressure, but B, yeah. particularly the pressure on men, that that's yeah. some integral part of being a man, that you put your dick in someone. Yeah, and, but I think that's the thing. Like, I was kind of aware at the time that I didn't want to deal with any of that stuff, but I think that was a logical decision informed by my immediate, like, the immediate society of kind of Essex at the time and the way stuff was being portrayed in the media. I, I think there was probably opportunities where I would have felt kind of sexually comfortable enough and emotionally comfortable enough that I could have engaged with people on, on that level at probably about the age of 16, 17, but I didn't really feel like I wanted to. And so looking back, I lost my virginity at, well, I, had, I first engaged with people sexually at about 18. And I'd kind of had some kind of, I'd been flirting with people in the previous few years, but I never really wanted to take that step as an intentional thing. But I think that was partly the way that um, black men are sexualized in this culture. I think that probably kind of like played in my mind. And I think the, the way that sexually successful men are seen in this culture, I think played in my mind. And so I didn't necessarily want to feel like I was being a cliched, you know, hypersexualized black man or a cliched kind of hypersexualized man within Essex either. And I also like, I already saw myself as a feminist, so I was kind of grappling with what that kind of meant and kind of issues with consent within parties and issues with consent, not really understanding consent well enough as a, as a young person and not knowing how exactly women can consent to sexual relationships and not wanting to feel like I was pressuring anybody into anything. So I think there was just a lot of stuff going on in my, in my head where I just essentially said like, nope, I'm just going to ignore that part of my life and try and focus on other stuff until I feel truly comfortable with that, which means that I don't think I made any mistakes sexually, which I think is really big. And I think a lot of people from my same generation, I think did make mistakes, which 
then affected their kind of sexual development. But it meant that I just kind of put a stopper on it and didn't even really open that box of worms until I felt a bit more comfortable with it. So it was kind of a difficult time, but I feel like it was, I dealt with it to the best of my ability at the time. So I can't really hold myself to account in any negative ways. Yeah. No, I think that's a really mature way of looking at it, that you were assessing Mm. from your perspective first, what's right for me. Was there still the pressure around you from your, your male friends? For sure. And female friends. I think from my male friends, there was just, I think, a lot of questions of why I didn't want to engage with it in any substantial way. I don't think there was necessarily... The peer pressure wasn't, wasn't, I think, super overt. I don't think it was anybody really was trying to force me to do anything. But I think there was a lot of a lack of understanding of why I would want to like, not do that kind of stuff, you know? Because I think a lot of them, you know, were really enjoying being relatively sexually free. And they just didn't really understand my point of view as much. But equally, I wasn't trying to convince people into it. And I wasn't trying to be judgmental about anybody else's way of doing things. I don't think, that that's, I don't think that's an, an issue if people are sexually engaged as long as they're in the right emotional place and they, they feel like they've done their own kind of due diligence on their mind to say that they're in the right place, then, uh, you know, I think all power to them. I just wasn't in that place, I don't think. Yeah. And did you find with the kind of questioning of your reasoning, did that also include questioning of your sexuality? Yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Like, I think, personally, I think that I'm really quite straight, but I think that I've always been very open with the idea that I might meet someone from the same sex and be, you know, sexually attracted to them. It hasn't happened yet. But at the time, I think there was a lot of questions about, oh, well, if you're not having sex with women, then you almost certainly are into men, right? And that was something which I, I was very lucky because in my household, that wouldn't, that wouldn't ever be an issue. And I've, I've discussed with my parents about sexuality and about homosexual relationships and about bisexuality from a relatively young age. So I felt that like, I didn't have any shame about that if that was the case, but I also didn't really feel that that defined me and didn't really feel like that was the reason why I didn't want to have sex with women. And it was just, I didn't feel like I wanted to have sex with anybody, really. It, it was, you know, and I don't even think it was necessarily like asexuality. I think there's, you know, much more understanding about ace people in culture now, but I didn't necessarily feel like there was part of me which didn't want to have sex with anybody like forever. It was just at the time I didn't feel emotionally like it's what I wanted. Maybe I was, maybe I was, you know, ace for a short amount of time, or maybe it was something which was just about my own psychosexual. That's really interesting. And I wonder to what degree that was from your parents, you know, bringing up these mature conversations and encouraging you to be connected with your emotions. You were Mm -hmm. then able to assess them in a way that maybe a lot of people weren't in touch with how they're feeling enough to make that kind of mature, like, do I feel emotionally safe to do this? Yes, for sure. I think it, it kind of, in hindsight, I think, though, there's, there is a, probably a middle ground between where I ended up and where I was trying to get away from. I mean, I think that I, I kind of avoided doing things for longer than I might have, partly because of fear that I had picked up about doing the wrong thing at the wrong time and maybe overthinking these things. Because I don't think you can, a lot of our decisions are part chance, right? So I think I'd done a lot of thinking and I'd done a lot of kind of emotional work about kind of when I would think that it would be the right time to start kind of engaging sexually but I also think that I probably delayed pushing myself into an area which felt you know kind of intimidating kind of a bit scary and the unknown and I think that in hindsight if I knew then what I know now I probably would have had sex slightly earlier but not that much earlier so yeah I think it's always going to be scary any new experiences are going to be scary and anytime you are emotionally vulnerable and you know metaphorically or literally naked in front of somebody for the first time I think that's always going to be an intimidating thing. And I think that intimidation of 
I allowed that intimidation to make the decision for me for longer than I think I should have. But yeah, still no mistakes. So can't yeah. complain. But you know what? Even that's a good thing to admit to. That's quite powerful. The the scariness of just being exposed in that way in front of a, yeah. another person is so often not even acknowledged, right? I'm trying to even think of what the closest men talk about is. And other than penis size, I can't really think of there's so little yeah, yeah. conversation about body confidence right for sure for sure it feels so superficial it being just like it's like one trait and that's the only thing that you would really care about being naked in front of somebody it's like no there's so many other things that people worry about and i think by reducing it down to just that thing first of all it makes it really difficult that if you do have kind of a, a smaller penis size i think it's really difficult to then overcome it in in the way that you see yourself sexually but like then I think if you have like a, an average size penis, but you still feel really, really self-conscious about all these other things, it feels very difficult to then engage with that in any substantial way. Because it's like, well, nobody really cares because we don't have an equivalent kind of female gaze and we don't have um, our bodies portrayed in the same way as females do. So I think people sometimes feel that like they can't engage with the idea that they're not happy with their bodies because that's not a particularly masculine thing to do. Which, yeah, yeah. It's, it, it, I think there's a lot of people who go into that situation who just feel kind of really uncomfortable and it takes them a while to get through that and i think if you're uncomfortable with the way you look i think potentially you're going to rush into things sexually instead of just kind of sitting in the space and enjoying the emotions and enjoying being with somebody in that in that way it, it feels then potentially more like you you're more likely to rush to the end and rush to the kind of penetrative sex if you don't feel that comfortable it's just kind of rushing through it so yeah i think there's a lot of issues associated with kind of male body image associated with sexuality yeah yeah and i think that's something that as men we all need to culturally get better at and part of that is creating more male role models in terms of body confidence that for, for women sure. there's been so much progress there's still you know disproportionate pressure on female bodies but equally they also have more role models and role models of all kinds of different appearances and backgrounds mm -hmm. and skin color and factors like this Whereas I think for men, body confidence for us is still, you know, topless guys in movies or on beaches, and they're always super muscular. And that that's kind of what we've got. And so then if you're not that, mm. it then doesn't seem a coincidence that so often eating disorders with men are related to exercise, because that's yeah. what we see. So we've got yeah, to, sure. you know, eat nothing, but also be huge. Yeah, 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 yeah. I think also, like, you can see, it's. I mean, it's getting better. I think I do think that discussions around body confidence for, for any of the sexes is getting better. But I do think that when men get kind of slightly plumper, I think they are still being opened up to a lot of negative, negative attention on social media, negative, negative attention online. And I think that comes from celebrity culture and the way people are talked about. You, talk, you look at, like, say, James Corden or Jonah Hill and some of the things that they have gone through because of the size that they were at when they were already famous, I think gets into people's minds in ways which, you know, are quite subtle because they're still quite successful men. But I think it means that people turn away from engaging with the idea that, you know, all these people's bodies are, you know, fine just the way they are and into negative relationships with food and exercise, like you said. Yeah. And even I feel like with those examples, it does in a way fit a narrow idea of masculinity because it's For a sure. funny fat guy. Yeah, and, yeah, yeah. and women have, you know, a similar trope that that's somehow you can be overweight, but only if you're funny, as if yeah, yeah, it's yeah. that person's responsibility to make everyone else more comfortable and put everyone sure. at ease with their very existence by making them For laugh. Sure. 
Yeah, yeah. And and also, you know, within that, they're usually not necessarily seen as, as a sexual being in a lot of the a lot of their films or in a lot of the media that they're portrayed in. They're seen as the funny best friend or they're seen as uh, certain tropes, which mean that you take the sexuality out of it, and which then doesn't really engage with it in any substantial way. So. And then we do need to start wrapping up, unfortunately. So to come back to your own journey with mental health, do you feel mm. like all the progress you've made on kind of deconstructing pressures of masculinity have had a big impact on how you've just coped with life and recovering? I think I've been very lucky in that I've had, I think, quite good male role models from some of the media which I've accessed from my own personal life. And also, yeah, that, that I can emulate. But also I've been into like so many things which by necessity kind of break free of the cliches of masculinity. The idea that I'm a nurse, a poet, and I'm into heavy metal and hip hop, and I'm into like American football. I think all of these things kind of in in mainstream media sometimes seem at odds. And by being able to be successful in all these worlds and be able, being able to engage with all these worlds, I feel like I've taken a lot of the pressure off myself for being any kind of kind of perfect hyper masculine guy. And I think that it's quite nice feeling like within that I've been able to be a bit of a role model for other people. So through playing American football, I was part of the Great British Student Squad. And I was able to be in multiple different sports teams as captains. So people within those teams would sometimes look up to me and be like, oh, he's a good player, but also he's you know, a vegan, or also he is a nurse, or also he, he writes poetry, and that those things can exist side by side in the same human being. You can still be masculine, whatever that means. You can still be a successful man while being able to express yourself emotionally or while being able to engage with things in a caring way and have good interpersonal relationships and have friendships with women, which aren't focused on sexuality. So I think I've been very lucky to succeed in so many areas that I have become a role model within certain friendship groups in a way which, you know, fills me with a lot of joy and, and gratitude. But I think also helps people in a two in kind of both directions. Yeah, I definitely see that. And I've found personally real power in combining these elements, you know, that to some people seem at different places in the gender spectrum. And actually, yeah. I found that Opposite to that being in any way seen as inferior, many people, because of a lot of the confidence I've worked on, actually find it quite intimidating. The fact that I'm a guy that talks about emotions as part of his career, you know, arguably talking about mental health is the thing that I'm most known for. And yet I'm also self-employed and in charge of my life and I'm yeah. a tall guy I'm 6'3 and you know I, I'm quite a kind of dominant character to to interact with and you know that sort of to some people actually is more intimidating right that I fit many of the kind of ideas of masculinity but then the areas which I don't I also really own so actually those people that have more backwards views of of how narrow what a man is is find it difficult to be around me and tend to kind of filter themselves out of my life which is no mm. bad thing no for sure for sure well then i guess are we driving people who are maybe a bit more aggressive in their views into their own you know uh, smaller and smaller echo chambers and creating pockets of people who then you know we see this like secondary movement of like trad wife um, men's rights activists uh, incel red pill stuff is that a, a reaction partly to people like us being able to do you know a lot of things which are traditionally seen as masculine but also engage with another side of ourselves and that's be successful and them not necessarily feeling like they've got the opportunity to do that creating potentially spaces which are 
going to rear their heads again and and fight against this kind of progression. That's that's my fear is the idea that that you know I'm very much part of the liberal elite. I'm very much part of a progressive way of seeing kind of gender and sexuality, but that there is definitely um, a reaction against that in certain parts of the world that kind of scares me. It scares me that we might fall back into this need for hyper masculinity again because. You know, I feel like I've really enjoyed not having to, you know, surrender to that societal expectation in quite a while. So, I know what you mean. It is a fear of mine, but I think there are going to always be certain people that that find other people's freedom intimidating. I just hope that they will go away and sort of reflect and and take the time they need um, to ask themselves some questions. But mm. actually, you know, in practice, I've found something quite unexpected, which is that I've become quite a role model for a lot of men, that a lot of people tell me this. And I don't really feel like I fit that, right? I don't fit a lot of the, maybe enough of the stereotypes that I think I would need to, to be a male role model. And Mm. yet, actually, to many men, including many of our listeners, I seem to kind of feel a bit like freedom, that because Mm. I can talk openly, and because I've struggled with things like body image and an eating disorder that are still very stereotyped as being only feminine issues. I have a way of moving through the world that feels less restricted and in that way is yeah. quite attractive. And so I think if people can get past some of their initial uncomfortability, then they'll naturally sort of learn quite a lot. And like the people that that you described when you were captaining sports teams, they were able to see so he's super impressive in a way that I can understand. And then on further examination, there's also all these other things he's great at. Maybe I should engage in more of that too. Yeah, yeah. I think also, you know, sports teams get a bad name for being quite regressive. And, you know, especially around university teams, the kind of negative press that, say, rugby teams or football teams get every year in universities behaving in ways that are just super misogynistic and, and uh, you know, engaging in kind of sexual harassment and dealing with real bad issues on college campuses of consent being you know uh, stepped on i always wanted to be very intentionally to not um, embody that still be part of a sports team but actually engage with things in a really progressive way engage with things from a feminist point of view and i think that that was powerful because sometimes you've got to show people that you're successful in ways that they understand like you say and that's really the only way to make positive change within toxic masculinity circles you kind of have to play that game, win it, and then be like, we need to pick apart this. We need to look at yeah. how we're dealing with it in this way. And so I was, I think I was very happy to have the opportunity to do that while I was in university and have the opportunity to do that post-university as well. Yeah, and it's something that has been really surreal in some ways for me to experience that I've then become such an advocate for, for men speaking up about their experience. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. I didn't think that would be maybe a natural fan base for me I maybe yeah, got yeah. so caught up with the the masculinity stereotypes that I didn't see that one coming and what's been really cool about this experience is that I've found through having more of these conversations all these little inconsistencies with masculinity that help explain it which then gives me the ability to put things in other people's terms so even if I don't captain a sports team I can take parts of their current reality their current paradigm and sort of niggle at them like one I often talk about is we're so used to little boys growing up looking up to superheroes 
and they so embody uh, this idea of masculinity that you've got to be strong and you've got to save the day and there's no housework to be seen. <laughs> All your armour and your cape and everything is just naturally clean. And that is so kind of normalised for people and we grow up as that being the superheroes you aspire to, the the boy assigned toys that you play with. And then yeah, yeah, yeah. you watch all the movies, even as an adult. And then I ask people about, do you ever think about them wearing makeup when they're on set and they're filming the movies? Yeah, And yeah. a lot of the time people don't even believe me, but I've, you know, I work in modelling. And so I'm very comfortable with the fact that to be on screen, I'm probably going to be put in makeup and that's just part of the process. Whereas we're so removed from little things like that, that then they think, wait, so this guy that's, you know, so, you know, so strong and can literally be hulkish, is there in a load of makeup and has their hair retouched before every shot and all these people around to check that they're looking as perfect and attractive as possible. And then you start to see the the cogs turning in someone's head and they think, okay, maybe what I've been brought up to believe isn't quite what it seems. Yeah, that's really, really important. I think also it's the idea that, and it's something which I've only really come recently to, the idea that you don't have to butt heads with people over this kind of stuff. A lot of it's about just sowing seeds. Like stuff will, people will come to that in their own time as long as you say the right things to allow them space to say, oh, maybe this isn't exactly what I believed then even if they don't agree with you when you are having these conversations or when they're engaging with the podcast, they can go away and do some extra thought. They can go away and subconsciously try and develop some of these ideas. So the next time you have a conversation, actually they've, they've engaged with it in ways that you didn't even expect, even if you still were butting heads when you had that initial conversation. Um, so that's something yeah. I'm trying to get better at is not expecting people to, to change immediately, myself included, when presented with new information. Sometimes it takes a while to get there. Yeah, absolutely. And I think you can make a lot more progress when you get people to question themselves and then they Mm. see how deep these things go, you know, and then they start to wonder like, huh, why is it all these scars in the action movies seem so aesthetically pleasing? How have Mm -hmm. people got symmetrical bruises, (laughs) you know, and you you start to uh, really see how absurd a lot of it is. And that's something I'm really consciously trying to do now is rather than be like, here are all my views on the world. Instead, be like, oh, tell me more about yours and we'll sort of ask a few questions. Yeah, for sure, for sure. Grand. So we'll wrap up there then. Thank you so much for joining me today. So if people want to find more out about you and about your poetry, where should they go? I'm all over the place at the moment. So if you type in, my website is peersthepoet.co.uk. So a lot of stuff is posted up there. Also, all my social medias are all under the the, the tag of Piers the Poet. So on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And yeah, I'm I'm doing things here and there. I'm, I'm going to be doing quite a few different projects coming up um, that are all very community focused to tell stories of people in the community. Um, so they'll be up on my site at some point. Yep. And we've had the privilege of working with you a little bit on that in our Hope from the Frontline episode, where we yeah. interviewed different key workers and shared their experience through the pandemic. So if people want to go find the link for that in the episode description, they can hear a sample of one of your poems as well. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Of course. Thank you for being here. Thank you for listening. For a list of our recommended resources, visit mentalpodcast.co.uk. And remember, we are in no way a substitute for qualified counselling or other mental health support.
Our show is edited and produced by the brilliant Pete Murta with licensed music by NetSky. Links in the description. Speak to you next Thursday and remember, you are enough.